0: The holy grail of investing with New York Times bestselling author and life and peak performance coach, Tony Robbins. Two, the president of the United States is too compromised to stand trial. Why then is he the perfect fit to lead the free world? And three, okay, I didn't see it coming. Neither did you. Our name isn't John Dorsey. We weren't the GM of the Kansas City Chiefs. I didn't see it. In Patrick Mahomes. It is The Will Cain Show, streaming live at FoxNews.com on the Fox News YouTube channel. You can always get this show wherever you get your audio entertainment on demand at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Just hit subscribe. And should you ever want to watch one of our past interviews, say, with Dave Portnoy, the founder of Barstool Sports, or my old co-host at ESPN, Stephen A. Smith, or philosopher and thinker, Jordan Peterson, go hit subscribe to The Will Cain Show on YouTube, and you can get exclusive content and old interviews that never will be old for your ever growing mind. I didn't come by him naturally. Consider me a convert of Tony Robbins. Three reasons. One, I grew up in a small town in Texas. There was a cultural mindset generally that your mind isn't really something you work on like your body. That Psychiatry or therapy or anything to consider yourself is a little bit of a weakness. You don't talk about yourself, you don't think about yourself, and you don't openly work on yourself. Two, inside that small town Texas environment, if you did think outside of yourself, you thought of God. We sat on the last pew of the First United Methodist Church, and I listened to Mr. Jarvis jingle his change a few rows up. And that was the time where we considered anything spiritual, or anything positive, or anything to make yourself better. And that's good, and that's fine, but it considered anything outside of that environment, anything outside of the church, at best an indulgence, and maybe at worst, a distraction from God. And three, once I got into my 20s, I got very invested in the philosophy of Ayn Rand. I loved the Fountainhead. I loved Atlas Shrugged. I I thought a lot about her philosophy of objectivism, and it pointed to a lot of the problems in the world of people indulging in themselves, indulging in subjectivism, and thinking they can live in their own particular unique and individualized reality, when in fact there is an objective reality. I tell you all this as background because I didn't come by the idea that I should consider my perception, my subjective reality, as a way to control how I approach objective reality. Not a denial of God, not a denial of objective reality, and not a denial of that manly culture that I grew up with in Texas, but actually a way to embrace and enhance all of that by considering my own mind. That's how I come by Tony Robbins. So let's start with story number one. He is the number one life and business strategist, peak performance expert, and number one New York Times bestselling author, global entrepreneur and philanthropist. And he is in our studios in New York City. He is Tony Robbins.
1: What's up, Tony? Hey, well, nice to meet you, buddy. i, I, I was thought they were punking me. There's an empty the chair here I was gonna be talking to. So I didn't know you we were. I am location. so disappointed. <laughs>
0: I'm so disappointed as well, but I, as much as I wanted to meet you and in person, I've had the opportunity to speak to you through the camera lens once before. Yes. But to meet you in person, I had to stay married. I just spent the last five days in <laughs> um, in Las Vegas, Nevada, which, on its face, is a bad thing to uh, have done in, a, in in a marriage. But it was for the Super Bowl. I needed to come home. I needed to be with my family. Goodness. As much as I wanted to meet you. Uh, Tony Robbins, I've got a lot I want to talk to you about today. Can I start with this? Sure. You, um, you have uh, earned the right throughout your life to impart wisdom and advice on millions in this world. I'm curious, though, as we sit here in the present tense today, where do you struggle? What is your personal struggle? What is your biggest struggle where somebody could,
1: should, or would offer you advice? Um, I think time is still the final frontier for me personally. And the reason is because, you know, I have 114 companies now. We do over $7 billion in business. I come from absolutely nothing. And I love the variety of that. But I also have five kids and five grandkids. I have a 48-year-old daughter, and I have now almost a three-year-old daughter. So um, I think time is that final frontier for me. And I'm always thinking how to crunch it. But just I'm pulled to many different things. I have lots of interests and Lots of things I do in philanthropy, and all of them really matter to me. So I think that's probably the single most challenging area for me personally.
0: You, you know, Tony, I, I mentioned it. You could probably hear my introduction in in leading into this interview. I'm not going to say this is what this is the piece of content that really won me over with you. It's not. You know, have I've been aware and won over to Tony Robbins for quite some time, but. You know, I I saw this video, Tony, of your interview that you just did in the past month or so with comedian Theo Vaughn, And I love yes, Theo Von. Yes, I think he's I hilarious. Um, but you were talking about and you said specifically, "Hey, I'm not necessarily who, someone who believes in positive thinking. I believe in intelligence." I think was yes. the line that you gave him. But as a as an illustration of the power of perception of not subjective reality, but how you take in objective reality. You told him to close his eyes and, and look at everything in the room that's brown. And, and then you, you, you brought in everything in the room that's red. And there was something about that. And maybe you can share that with us here today, Tony. That just made me realize like, it's how you internalize objective reality that creates your own reality.
1: I, what I try to tell people is um, you, we don't experience life. We experience the life we focus on. So what's wrong is always available. So is what's right. But I'm not in just being positive. I believe you got to see things as they are, but not worse than it is. Most people today make it worse than it is. There are people, young people today, that have been sold this idea that in 12 years the world's going to end because of climate change, which we all know is bullshit. But when you hear it over and over and over again, now people are not having children because of it. So I think you got to see what it, it is, not worse than it is, because we make it worse than it is. People do that because they're afraid of getting their hopes up and being, being disappointed. But then if you're a leader, you gotta see it better than it is. You know, in the Bible it says, without a you know, vision, people perish. You know, it's good advice. You have to have a vision beyond the now. And then you have to make it the way you see it, which requires strategy, not just positive thinking and enthusiasm. If you're running east looking for a sunset, I don't care how positive you are, it's not gonna work, you got the wrong strategy. So with Theo though, it was interesting because he's such a funny and beautiful young man. And I felt like it was like my son there because you know he's got a lot of pain in him, a lot of comedians do. Um, Not all of them, but many do. And I found found myself doing kind of a little mini intervention on him. And what was amazing is people sent me responses, you know, on YouTube, which can be mixed, obviously. And there were so many young men that feel like he do, that feel like they're not enough, that feel like they don't have a place in the world, that feel like, you know, if they get too happy, they're afraid things are going to fall apart. And so it was really interesting for me to see how many people were touched by that conversation who were his followers, which are primarily young men, as you know. And there was something about that particular. And
0: look, Tony, you know, as I sat and thought about our conversation today, I thought, like, what's new under the sun for Tony to talk about? Like, there's not a pitch in my arsenal I can throw him that's going to get by. (laughs) It's not a pitch he hasn't seen. He's he's got every curveball, every knuckleball. He's seen every pitch. He knows what he's going to say. But what was it? There was something about that illustration you gave to Theo. Would you, for for my audience, for this audience, And I know it doesn't take long, but no. what is
1: that about how we see things in a room? Well, I was, it's not so much a room. I was just giving an example. I said, uh, you could do it right now, your viewers or listeners. If you look around the room you're in right now and look for brown, look for everything that's brown, brown clothing, brown hair, brown people, brown anything. Look behind you, look around you, look above you, and then close your eyes. And then tell me everything you saw in the room that was red. And Usually there's a little laugh when I do this in the public market, you know, 10, 15,000 people. And I'll say, open your eyes now. Look for red. Look for red. Okay, how many found you know more red this time? Everybody raises their hand. Well, why? Because seeking, you shall find. You will find things even if they're not there, I'll tell people. And they look confused. And I'll say, how many saw beige things, called them brown just to feel successful? How many saw something burgundy, yeah. called it red? So whatever your brain is looking for, you will find. Whatever you believe, so is it done unto you? You Quote some terms you and I would both relate to as Christians. But the bottom line is, it's true. Once you believe something, you find evidence to support it. You'll convert, If you think somebody a bad person... You'll color them from, you know, brown to, you'll take the beige and make it brown. If you think somebody's a good person, you'll turn it around. Like, look, for example, if if your best friend treats you really terribly one day, you know, you will feel sad or angry or hurt. And if you can't resolve it, you have to go to a phone call or you got to go to a meeting. You'll usually rationalize their behavior, right? You will usually say, well, they're probably having a bad day. But if you go to somebody who you think is, you know, a mean, manipulating person, it may not be true, but it's what you believe about them. And they don't treat you badly, they teach you real nice. What's the first question in your mind? What do they want? So our relationships, our life is controlled by our beliefs. Our beliefs color what we see and don't see, what we experience and don't see. So it's really important to question our beliefs at times, to not just accept what you've been trained to believe because our culture, we have a perfect example is finance. So many people in this country, young people think we have a terrible country. Well, I, I was in the Soviet Union when I was 23 years old. I was brought over there because of what I was doing at the time. I traveled the whole country. It made me a capitalist. I didn't know what a capitalist was before that. But everybody's supposed to be equal. Yeah. And there was no equality. I was on these trains going from literally Moscow to Siberia with all these high-end people. That everybody's supposed to be equal. And they're having caviar. And we'd stop in every little train station, get out in the city, and there would literally be half a mile, quarter of a mile of people wrapped around these buildings so they could get in line for a quart of milk and a half a loaf of bread. And so it's like, I came back and said, you got to become, if you live in a free enterprise country, you got to do it. So most people in this country who hate this country or want the government to pay for everything, which of course it can't, it's already broke. They don't understand the opportunity. Their problem is they've been trained to be a consumer instead of an owner. I was trying to explain this the other day to a young person. And, and I said, do you have an iPhone? And uh, do you, by the way, do you have an iPhone? Well, Of course. Yeah. So most people have one. I said, okay, so you have an iPhone. Have you bought several iPhones? They said, yeah. I said, well, I've been around enough. I bought every iPhone. So if you bought every iPhone since the first one in 2007, you spent $20,600. That's the amount you've put out of pocket over that time period. Now, if you bought the stock, hear me now, you took the same amount of money you spent at that time for the iPhone. And I went back and made a chart so people could see it and bought the stock. Today, all that adds up to $206 million. So it's like, no, you know, yes, that's the real number. That's the real number. So we just don't teach people, we, we we don't teach people to question their limiting beliefs, and we don't teach them beliefs that empower them. So what if you believe you find evidence for it? How else can you explain all these young people who are pro-Hamas, not pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas? They say, you know, words are destructive, words are violence. I mean, you know, I talked to Chris Rock and he said, words aren't violence, I think words are violence, no one has slapped the shit out of you on national television, right, so it's like, <laughs> so, but you know, those same people, someone is cutting somebody's head off, I mean, I, I hate for any side, Palestinian or Israeli to be injured or hurt, I mean, to me, it's, it's horrific, but you know, we have these interesting beliefs that we develop because we develop, a, you know, an ideology and it limits us, and what I try to do is get people to say, I don't tell people what to believe, I get them to question anything that's limiting themselves and perhaps see if there's a more expanded perception. I think that's what's missing in our country. We don't have much of a middle right now. We have extremes on both sides. And I think most Americans are in the middle, but they don't have the voice. They don't speak it up. I'm hoping that'll change over the next few years. Hey Tony, do you feel like you're
0: swimming against the current when you sell people this idea, or help them understand the idea that they that, that there's a way to see the world um, through a different lens, and that lens tends to be more positive. What I'm wondering about is are we inherently culturally or maybe even as as human beings attracted to negativity? You brought up climate change a moment ago and young people attracted to this idea that's a that's a dystopian apocalyptic future. Uh, one of my favorite authors is Matt Ridley and he talks about like hey reality is the world has gotten better over a, a broad timeline. That's your right. life has gotten better, poverty has gotten down, your health has gotten better, but what sells in the news And then what sells in a worldview is negative. And it makes you wonder, like, are we not naturally or culturally attracted to this apocalyptic future? And you, for example, then, are swimming against the tide, swimming against the current to tell people, no, that's not actually an inevitability.
1: You're you're absolutely very astute. It isn't just the culture. It is the way we are wired as humans. We have a survival brain, and it was designed millions of years ago, and it was designed so you could— immediately find anything dangerous to survive. So you'd either fight it, or you'd freeze and hope it didn't notice you, or you'd run, you'd flight. Those are the three choices. Well, most people have not evolved very much from there. There's no saber tooth tiger anymore. But we have that reaction of, what does somebody write about us in social media? Or do we have enough money? Or something that isn't really survival. And so the negative bias, that's why in the news, you know it, journalism, journalists are great people. The media, like when I say this, people say, no, they're not. Yes, they're good people. They're doing their job. Their job, the majority of them, is for the shareholder. The way you get the shareholder make more money is you get more eyeballs. We're not an information society that died a long time ago. We're, we're drowning in information. We're starving for wisdom. But what gets, if it, mm. you know, if it bleeds, it leads. So they know that if I can get that headline, even if it's not the same as the article itself, right? What is clickbait? You click on it and I get paid. So that's the unfortunate part. Then you have social media that just everyone has an equal voice, even not everyone is equally qualified to talk about something, right? So the combination of those two has changed our society to such a negative bias. But that's true. That negative bias is in everyone. But that doesn't mean you have to live that way. It'd be natural to, you know, drop your drawers and go to the bathroom wherever you are. That's the way it's done in some countries. But, you know, we don't do what everybody else does. We culture ourselves. We raise the standard beyond just the fear-based of our brains, and we develop a different level of consciousness. So, yes, but most people come to me when they're hungry. You know, people come to look at the demographics and they see every age, every background. You know, I just did a seminar for 1.1 million people for four days in 195 countries, all over the world simultaneously in every time zone. And it's every walk of life. But what they all have in common is hunger. So people come to me when they're the best at the world because they're looking for those little things. They know if I make this little change, just 10 degrees, but I take that at a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, I have a different destination, a different result, a different destiny. Other people come because they had a birthday with a zero on it or they went through a divorce or they lost their job or they've been doing the same thing forever and they're great at it, but they're bored out of their mind. So there's a hunger to change. Without the hunger, most people are never going to interact with me. And then when they do, I do things in deep immersive. Uh, I don't do something for 30 minutes or an hour and try and pump somebody up. Even my books are ridiculous, you know, they're five, six hundred pages, but people get pulled into them. And when I do seminars, they're 12 hours a day, four or five days in a row. These are people that wouldn't sit for a three hour movie someone spent $300 million on. But when you think about time, time is emotion. When you, how long is a long time? When you're hating what you're doing, a minute's eternity. When you're loving what you do, time flies. And so I've learned how to engage people in a way where they enjoy themselves while they're transforming, instead of like it being a pain. And that's really why I've been able to do this in my, I'm entering my 47th year doing this. I typically started when I was three, of course, but you get well, the here's, picture.
0: Well, here, well, I've gotten the picture and here's again, and we're going to move on to talking about finance and, and investing in just a moment. But like, I, I just kind of personalize this with you, Tony, and everyone I'm sure does, but like my own lens through which I come to appreciate what you have to say. First of all, I love what you had to say about information. Look, we're awash in information, and I actually think we are. We are every intelligence in its truest sense is readily accessible all around us. That doesn't mean we make intelligent decisions, but what we are what we are impoverished at is wisdom, and and that's making sense of everything around us, both past, present, and future, and, and all of this information. And and you, the wisdom that 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 has. You know, I grew up, here, you'll appreciate this. I grew up, I think, with one of your friends. He is, uh, he was, he was uh, somebody I spent every summer with. His children are my good friends, and um, we just partnered together on a, on a fund to help raise money for the people that were, that were uh, devastated in Lahaina, Maui. Uh, but I grew up with Wayne Dyer, and, oh, wow. and uh, I know that you and Wayne yes. knew each other uh, well, and by the way, and I would say it to Wayne's face back then, I was like, oh, come on, manifest my destiny, Wayne, you know, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the power of positive thinking, you know, and, and he'd laugh, and he was a great guy, and, um, I
1: see, I see. A good father. And when a really you talk about father, habit, too.
0: and, and, and those, uh, gosh, is it nine kids? Yes, um, who are, uh, are are all really close to to, to my family uh, to this day. But you know, when you talk about habits, you you talk about it, Tony, in a language that makes sense to me. Like the habit of how I think about my day. You know, yes. I made one of my New Year's resolutions to get up every day and you know meditate and and, and reach out to someone. Which, by the way, I'm not going to pretend like I'm super succeeding at all of this. But I need to build the habits. And there's something like functional and understandable yes. Yes. about making this type of thinking a habit that has essentially compound interest in my life.
1: Yes, it builds. Well, you know, i give your viewers and listeners maybe a chance to consider, it. think about it this way. I'm pragmatic. By the way, I, I have very strong spiritual beliefs. I don't think there's a, a separation between those. Personally, everything in the world is spiritual. God is a part of my life in every way. I feel I'm only here because I've been blessed. I started with absolutely nothing. I've done my part. But I could have done my part and not been so blessed. You know. I, I don't take that for granted ever. But from a pragmatic perspective, if the quality of our life is what we focus on, then I tell people there's three decisions you're making every moment. And your audience can ask themselves, is this happening right now? Every moment of your life, you're making three decisions. You're not necessarily making them consciously though. And because of that, we make the same decisions over and over and our life doesn't usually change. So the first decision is what are you gonna focus on? So at any moment, Whatever you focus on, you're going to feel. If you make it to 7 p.m. to have dinner with your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend or someone, and you get it at 7 and they're not there, I'll ask people, what are you feeling? And some people go, I'm angry. And some people say, I'm worried. And I go, well, it's only 7. You know? What if it's 7.30 and they're not there? Now I'm really angry. I really, what if it's 8.30? They've not called. They've not texted, not showed up. I'm really angry. One woman said to me, I'm full. I didn't wait for the bastard. Right? You know? so, but the difference yeah. between whether you're angry or pissed off or worried has nothing to do with life, objectivity. It's what you did in your head. If they were late and you're in your head, they always do this, they don't care. They're probably screwing around with somebody else. You're angry. If you said in your head, oh my gosh, what if they were in a car accident? Now you're worried. So we think the world is controlled by the outside. It's really our decisions of what to focus on. And the second decision is what does it mean? Is this the end or the beginning? If you think it's the end of a relationship, you're gonna make a very different decision than if you think it's the beginning of a relationship, right? In the beginning, you'll do anything. In the end, it's like, I don't know, type of thing. You know, does this person disrespecting me? Are they challenging me? Are they coaching me? Are they loving me? Whatever meaning you come up with will radically change your emotions and that controls the third decision, what am I gonna do? But let me give you a pragmatic way they could use this right now. Here's a couple patterns of focus that control your life completely. One question I'll ask you, and your audience can answer it for themselves, do you tend to focus more on what you have or what's missing, especially with COVID and so forth? Where have you focused more on what you have or what's missing? What would you say for you, Will? For me, what's missing. Yes. And that's true of most achievers. And so what's good about that is it gives you some drive. What's bad about that is you can never stay fully fulfilled because when you're constantly focusing on what's missing, you never get to fill up with that joy and have it last because you're always the next thing. That's what puts people on the mm-hmm. hamster wheel. Um, and especially during COVID, it was really easy to go, what's missing? Cause there seemed to be a lot missing. But if you can focus on a different habit, the habit of what I have first, that feeling of gratitude changes your biochemistry. This is science. It's not attitudes or just mindsets. And in fact, think about this, the two emotions that mess people up in their relationships and their business and their career are fear and anger. Well, when you're grateful, you can't be angry and grateful simultaneously and you can't be fearful and grateful simultaneously. So I have a thing I do every morning for 10 minutes which taps into that gratitude and puts me in that state every day. Another pattern, do you tend to focus on what you can or can't control? What would you say you do? We both do. We all do I both, focus, right? No, which one do you focus more on? Well, I would say, uh, I, this is a big
0: issue in my life. I am much more fulfilled when I have control even if I fail at that control than when I am out of control. So as far as my focus, Um, It's probably on obtaining some measure of control because the out of control focus is so unproductive for me. And I I, I hate the way I feel. It's the source of most of my unhappiness.
1: Well, it's true for most people because all the research shows the more you feel in control of the events of your life versus your events are controlling you directly affects to your level of happiness and self-esteem. Um, But the majority of people, and I think you'd be different in this area, most of the people that come see me, they come see me because they want to take control of their finances or their business or their relationship or their body or their energy or their happiness, right? So I tend to bring those people in. But think about this. If you're constantly focusing on what you can't control, what kind of stress are you going to have inside? And if you're adding to that, you're not, but people add to that, what's missing And then here's the third one. Do you tend to focus more on the past? Everyone listening can try this. The present or the future? We all do all three. But where do you spend more of your time focused on the past, present, or future? What would it be for you? I heard you do this with Theo, and he
0: said the past. And I was riding along in this decision tree with him, and and my answer is different. Um, Mine is on the future. So. Uh, and you can add mine up there My, mine is focus on what i don't have focus on the future and focus on how i can obtain control
1: <laughs> and, and you just and you just describe the core of your personality in three areas of focus and by the way yours is very proactive it's an achiever orientation that's why you've achieved someone who's always focused on what they can't control there's so much we can't control in our lives. You can't, listen, you think you're in control? Your brain doesn't even control your bowels if you go to Mexico and eat the wrong food. I mean, let's be honest, right? You don't have full control in this life. We have influence. We can control our thoughts and our emotions if we learn how to, but most people haven't learned how to. But imagine somebody who is constantly focusing on what they can't control, what's missing, think COVID, and then the past. Well, you can't change the past. You put those three together and you have somebody who's going to be angry or depressed. So I get people all the time who are, you know, been on, I ask people in live audiences a lot of time, I have 10, 15, 20,000 people. How many of you know someone i will ask them who takes antidepressants and they're still depressed? 90% of the room raises their hand. Well, why? Because when you take antidepressant, all it does is it numbs you. In fact, a year ago, well, 2022, the cover of Newsweek was showing SSRIs don't even work, but we're still selling them. But you know, the good news is you can learn to change these. Stanford decided during the middle of uh, COVID They reached out to me because two of their professors went to one of my programs, and they both were clinically depressed and came out with no symptoms of depression. They said, do you have data on this? And I said, well, I have millions of graduates. They said, but I mean like scientific data. I said, well, no, but would you like to do a study? They said, we'd love to. So I said, well, if we're going to do it, you're going to do it on depression because during COVID, the amount of depression exploded, as you know, and the amount of suicides exploded, overdoses. I said, well, what is the mm-hmm. average across you know, meta-studies? Uh, what, 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 how well do people get under current approaches? And he said, well, Tony, the average is 60% make no improvement, whether doing drugs or therapy or both. 40% on average across the meta-studies improve, but their improvement is about 50%, so they're half as depressed. Now, some people get well, but very few. Most of them take these drugs for years or even decades. And I said, man, you could almost get that with a placebo. And they said, you're right. I said, what's the best study you've ever done? They said it was done five years ago at Johns Hopkins. They took people for 30 days and gave them psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, for 30 days along Mm -hmm. with cognitive therapy. And I said, well, you must have got a change out of that. And they said, yes, it was the most success they'd ever had in the history of depression treatment. After six weeks, 54% of the people had no symptoms of depression. I said, well, why don't you you do your example against that for us? They did. They did the study. The numbers were so, it was a five-day seminar, no drugs, you know, no cognitive therapy. It's called Date with Destiny. I do it once a year. And they then followed yeah. up. The numbers were so insane, they didn't want to get you know blacklisted or you know, canceled. So they sent out all the data blindly to three other organizations. Here's the result. After six weeks, zero percentage of those people had clinical depression, no symptoms whatsoever. 17% went in with suicidal ideation. They all left with no suicidal ideation, 11 months later, follow-up, no depression, 52 percent excuse me, 71 percent reduction in negative emotions, 52 percent increase in positive emotions. So now we're doing a one-year study that's on quiet quitting to give you an idea in business as well. So we just change a few yeah. things, and you radically change how people feel and how they operate. And there's some simple, pragmatic things you can do. You know, Tony, one of the things, and I've had this conversation here on the Will Cain Show over the last couple
0: of weeks, I'm going to give you an example, you don't have to address the example, but you know... Um I would talk about the Republican primary, and I would say, you know, listen, something's not working for Ron DeSantis. It was just an, an analysis of reality, right? Yes. It's not endorsement. It's not a. I'm not waving pom-poms, and I'm not, and I'm not uh, cheering, you know, anyone's failure. I'm just trying to accurately assess reality. My argument in in to the audience is you have to accurately assess reality in order to to change reality. Yes. And so, but so much in news, especially when it comes to politics, become don't say anything negative because essentially we want to manifest our destiny. Like, talk positive, and then it turns positive. The reason I'm bringing that up is um, I think you need to understand reality. I think, you know, that, that's, on that's step page. one. Mm-hmm. Ste- step two, diagnose, improve reality after you've analyzed it. Right. So you're talking about SSRIs here. Here's what I would ask you. So we know that young women are having a huge problem with depression, kind of starting around their teens, and it seems to correlate with the adoption of social media. Without a doubt. We know that young men are having a big problem, maybe a little bit later, but we see the suicide and depression with young men. I've speculated as to why. You are very well positioned to tell us what is the diagnosis of reality. What is happening with young men and maybe with young women as well when it comes to depression?
1: Well, the studies with young women, the more they spend time on social media, the more likely they are depressed. And it's because we have this insane double standard for women, which is they're supposed to look like, you know, somebody that's on heroin, you know, that their body is skinny and it acts a certain way and be a certain way. And as you know, no one actually publishes reality in social media. They use filters and they make stuff look better. They make their life look better than it is. And so people feel about mm-hmm. their lives by comparing who they're around well, that used to be the people you growing up with. Now you're comparing to multi-billionaires, models, and people of that nature. And so it's overwhelming for women because it's so insane that they're held to the standard. Men don't have the same standard. You see, men usually are more suicidal because they feel like they're not enough and don't have a compelling future. They don't have a place in society. Yes. They don't have a way of no making purpose. it. They don't have a way of proving who they are. And you know, there are, you know, when I did Theo's piece, the thing that struck me again was how many men, like he, are focused on the past feeling like they're worthless, feeling like they're not enough. I mean, Phil was a genius in what he does, and yet he still was operating from kind of the past. Though His focus has been on these meanings he made about himself years ago, and he's gotten so used to it, as he described it, it's like a friend. You know, it's like this sadness, this overwhelm is like a friend. Well, I said, it is not your friend. It's just a habit. <laughs> it's, an, it's, I call it an emotional home. You know, when you see people like, for example, in some parts of the country where a cyclone comes in or storms storm, it destroys their home and they're crying and they, they got nothing left, but at least they survived. And you'd have to have, you know, ice in your veins not to care for them. But when you see them rebuild and go through it again, about the third time, most people's brains go, why don't you move? You know, but they don't move <laughs> yeah. because yeah. it's all they know. It's their home and we have an emotional home. And even if it's not a good place, we go back to what we know. So what I show people is it's time to maybe, you don't have to give up your home, but maybe it's time to expand your home and, and have it include a new set of emotions. If I had your audience write down on a piece of paper right now, and I'll do this in seminars, I'll say draw a line down the middle, and on the left side write every positive emotion you experience in an average week. Not once a year, not once a month, but once a week at least or more. On the right side write all the emotions that are negative that you experience in an average week. And I give them as much time as they need. The average person comes up with 12 emotions. And some got more positive and some got more negative, but the thing you see is there are 3,800 words in the English language for different emotions. And we have the same emotions over and over again. We use the same words to describe them, we use our body the same way. And so what I show people is how to expand it. You're ripping yourself off by having such a limited list of emotions, but people do it because of what they know. So I put people in environments Mm. where their energy is so high, their biochemistry changes, And now they start to feel differently and they start to link it. It's like if I asked you where you were during 9-11, if you're not an American, most people can tell me where they were, who was with them, what they saw. If I asked you where you were on 8-11, you have no clue unless something special happened because information without emotion is not retained. So I produce high levels of emotion and then we make the changes. And that's why when they did the studies, for example, at Stanford, they go, how is this lasting a year later with no interaction? because it was anchored into their nervous system with so much emotion at the time. It's in their bodies, not just their heads.
0: Information without emotion. Would you say information is ba- is without barely emotion retained. doesn't barely retained it's yes. so
1: you know why so your wife why know you know why I your wife can, about... you know why your wife will be able to tell you something horrible you did 12 years ago that you've forgotten and she'll remember in detail <laughs> so, some emotion attached <laughs> there's a reason i don't remember it i because didn't feel anything <laughs> women have a, a, clo- a deeper construction in their brains and female brains between the right and left hemisphere men are more separated so a man could take a word and put it in the left brain and put the emotion in the right brain woman you say something, and they have that emotion and that word simultaneously. So they remember more. That's why they have a deeper memory, to give you an mm.
0: idea. Always feeling, always remembering these women.
1: <laughs> um, Tony,
0: uh, here's why I asked you to diagnose reality, and I'm going to connect this to the SSRI conversation. Um, that is society's um, not diagnosis, that's society's current solution to the diagnosis of depression and um, purposelessness. And it's stunning. I mean, I don't know. I don't have it in front of me, but I've looked up in the past the percentage of people watching, listening, yeah. living in America right now that are on some antidepressant, ADHD, whatever it may be. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. And yes. then, Tony, I, I would add this. I, you know, my wife is involved. I had a. She's involved in things that bring her into contact with the foster care system in America. Yes. yes, And you're talking about children who have objectively awful circumstances for the entirety of their life. So, like, if you were saying, hey, why are you depressed? They'd be able to come up with some good reasons, you know? Yes. Um, and the foster care system, in partnership with the medical system, the answer to that is, here, have some of these drugs, And these kids are on these drugs constantly and early. And they're just an illustration, I think, of what's going on wider in society. At some point, Tony, I would have to think, and we may be already experiencing it, this chicken comes home to roost. What is the price we
1: pay for medicating society? Well, I think you can see it already. I don't think it's something that has come to come home to roost. You have so many people. I mean, most people don't want to come back to work. They were paid to stay home and now they don't want to work. And I, listen, I understand hybrid work can be really valuable. I have a lot of companies. We have a lot of hybrid companies. But, you know, there are a lot of companies they want their employees to come back to work and they go, I'll quit. Well, some of them are putting their foot down. Now, UPS the other day announced that everyone has to come back five days a week, all the management people. And they all complained, but they also fired 12,000 people on that day. So I think a tightening economy changes those types of things. But I think we have medicated ourselves so much that what's happened, it's like we become weaker and weaker. If you want to know the history of the, of the, of the country or the history of society, I'm a study, student of history. You study 1,000 years of Roman history, 500 years of Anglo-American history. I can tell you the cycle. It's really simple. Good times create weak people. They don't mean to be weak. It's just... When everything is available to you and you know nothing else, you get really stressed out when your internet doesn't work and you're banging on your phone. Give it a moment. It's going to a satellite. You know, it's like people forget. But good times create weak people. Weak people create bad times. Bad times create strong people. And strong people create great times. It's a cycle. So if you think of the greatest generation, somebody born in 1910, those people were protected during World War I. We came back in one. Think about it. When they're 10 years old, it's 1920. We're entering the roaring 20s. We have all this new technology, radio and television and cars. And by the way, that generation was not respected in their youth. They were like how older generations look at millennials or Z generation. They were called flappers. Oh, wow! They were, waste, they were wasteful yeah. people. They didn't care about anything. They were lazy. And they were because they, yeah. they grew up in ease. But guess what happened when they turned 19 or 20 and thought they're going to have a car if they're born in 1910? It was 1929. And people are jumping out of buildings, and the middle of the country was a dust bowl, and people are standing in line for bread. Well, those people had to get tough to survive. And they made it through 10 years of depression, only to make it to 29 years old in 1939 when World War II breaks out. And Hitler is strafing countries in a matter of days. And you and I weren't alive then, but it looked like we we're going to lose. And so these people volunteered, went to war, won the war, came back now at, you know, 35, 40 years old, and they were the heroes of society and created a new society, a new direction. Well, that was a winter time. Every winter has a spring where people get optimistic and society does well. And that goes on for 18 or 20 years. And then we have another 18 or 20 years. We're tired of the optimism. It's like, do you ever smile so much your face hurts? It's like, we need another emotion. And so we go to a summertime, and that's always a fight between young and old within the culture. And then there's a fall where the stock markets go crazy and people reap really easy and somebody wants to give you a house even though you don't have a job, right? And then it follows winter again. So we're in winter right now, and we're probably two thirds through. Ask it. you, where
0: do you think we are currently? We're no in winter.
1: Question. No question, we're in winter right now because in winter everything's fearful and everything's exaggerated and everything's negative, and so. But it isn't forever. That's the good news. Every winter is followed by a springtime. Every horrible night of the soul is followed by the day. I mean, if you were God, you'd set it up that way, so it seems to work pretty well. But it's like testing us to get strong, giving us some freedom and joy, testing us to be strong. But if you can understand that winter doesn't last forever, no pandemic lasts forever, no war lasts forever, no economy lasts forever, then you know that what's next can be better. It always has been. It's not a straight up arrow. It's not purely positive. It's like anything. If you see a straight line in nature, that's not nature, a human drew it. Real nature is like a stock. It grows up a little bit and comes down and goes up. And, but the overall, if it's healthy, is growing higher and higher, and that's humanity. So I think you know we're going to see more challenges, and we've got a whole society of people, millennials and Zs, that are going to be the next heroes of our society. I can promise you that.
0: I love that cycle analysis. I've never thought about it through the four seasons. I've read about, by the way, The Fourth Turning, which is Yes, says, that's one of my favorite um, books. I
1: interviewed those guys in the 1990s. Oh really? Yes,
0: Yeah, And that's the projection there. Is it an 80-year cycle? They talk about things moving yeah, in 80-year cycles. Yeah,
1: each season's roughly 20 years. It used to be 100 years in times of Rome, but it's gotten tighter now. Everything's faster. So yeah, so 18- to 20-year cycles that we go through. Think about the After the to... war. Think about after the war, the late '40s, '45 till about the time that you know, the president uh, was shot I mean JFK it was a very optimistic time then the summertime Mm -hmm. he gets shot martin luther king robert kennedy and what happens all hell's breaking loose between the generations and then think about the difference in the 90s and 2000 2010s pragmatic kids grew up and said i'm more interested in economics i want to have my life be a certain way so we go through these cycles emotionally and if you understand them you don't freak out so much. It's like I hear people all the time saying it's mm-hmm. the worst environment ever politically. And I, I sometimes when I do these events, I have these visuals I throw up. And they're placards from Jefferson and Adams during their campaigns. And if you read what they wrote about each other, it makes what right. Republicans and Democrats are right and left-right about themselves seem nice. I mean, it was brutal what they wrote in those days. This is just a cycle. Yeah. we're in? And you, you want to learn. Look, when winters come, some people freeze to death, other people get smart, and they ski and snowboard and build a fire and grow their business and educate themselves. This is the time to do all the above and retool yourself for the next period.
0: And the story of humanity is to save up for winter, <laughs> to, to last through the winter. And that That's takes right. us to your new book, by the way. Yes. Uh, uh, the Holy Grail of Investing, which um, you go into. This is the third in a trilogy on finance that you have written, and in this one, you're focused, you know, um, pretty pretty tightly on on private markets, the yes. markets that have been available to elites and somehow elusive to average investors for quite some time. Private equity, private debt, private placements, um, and I want to talk about some of that. But I, I, I'm going to start, as I always do, with where my natural curiosity begins. And you talk about in the book sports investing. Yes. And sports investing, obviously, I'm a massive fan, yeah. but but from um, it's it's interesting the place that sports is arriving in 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 entertainment, but also in society, where it's live and it's one of the few places anymore where we still congregate as a people and experience reality together communally. And as such, it's made it a valuable business. Um, one you point out hasn't always been available for us. Now there's there's private pools for people to jump into, but there's some teams like the Braves and Manchester United you can buy into publicly as well that are yeah, publicly true. traded. That's true. And and this is part of what you talk about at, is getting increasingly accessible for average people sports investing?
1: Well, for two reasons. The first reason is because the book is really teaching something that Ray Dalio taught me, which he's one of the greatest investors of all time, managed $170 billion, to give you an idea. And he talked about if you can find eight to 12 uncorrelated investments, big word for some people, it just means certain investments tend to move together. They move up together or go down. If you know stocks and bonds, they're supposed to go in opposite directions. Of course, in 2022, they all went down. But finding eight to 12 is not easy. But if you look at it, I interviewed 13 of the most powerful people in private equity, private credit, private real estate. And these are 20 to $100 billion companies that are getting returns of 20% per year compounded for decades. Some of them 30%. That's unheard of by most individuals. But if you're in the stock market, you got 9.2%. That's been great for 35 years. If you were in average private equity, not the people I have in the book... You had 14.2. So you literally were getting 50% more money per year compounded. So think of a million dollars as a round number. You can make it 100,000. But a million dollars put in the stock market 35 years ago, it's $26 million today. A million dollars in private equity, $139 million. Every stock market in the world. So how does that relate to sports? Well, these teams have never you had to be i had worked most of my life to make enough money to actually be a purchaser of a sports team with other partners i bought the lafc football club with my partners helped to build the stadium had a blast doing it it was just fun like you said just amazing but it's more than that now these teams it was announced yesterday in the new york times the nfl is going to decide in 6 weeks but the nba has already done this major league baseball major league soccer the national hockey association they all allow private equity guys to buy certain ones people with no leverage to buy pieces of these businesses now why would you want it you just said the most important reason they are monopolies you have a legal monopoly no one can compete with you number two your customers are fanatics that's what the word fan means and they're multi-generational number three it's not tied to the stock market when the stock market goes up and down has no impact whatsoever on sports They've made it through World War One two, the pandemics, and guess what? They continue to grow like crazy. And what they are today is not just butts and seats. They can raise the dollars to the hot dogs and you pay it, right? That's how it works. But the real value is the real estate they now have around these stadiums, and the big money, as you said, is the media. Because I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Peter Goober is one of my dearest friends and partners in some business, and uh, when he bought the LA Dodgers a few years back, he paid $2 billion, he and a team did. I own a piece of it now, too. And everybody said, no one's paid a $1 billion dollars for a baseball team. $800 has been the most. Maybe the Dodgers, they're so special they're worth a billion, but they're not worth 2000000000 billion. He'll never make his money back. So I go to Peter, who's you know, been an executive producer of 52 Academy Award-nominated movies, and he says, Tony, I said, I know you're not dumb. <laughs> Tell me what you know no one else knows. And He said, Tony, I'm going to leave you on the cliffhanger. You know who I am. I'm going to announce this on Tuesday. Call me. We'll celebrate together. So I find out on Tuesday he announces he sold the local TV rights for the Dodgers for $7 billion and made $5 billion in a day. That's the value. Of the top 100 shows this last year that you've seen, 92 were sporting I events. And that's because uh, cord clipping, nobody watches ads anymore, but you can't And you, the you vast can't majority watch. of those were NFL. That's right. Well, you saw the streaming that Peacock did. 30 million people, right, to see Kansas City against Miami. First time they ever did it. They, I, I think the number was 15 million new members. They got some re- insane number. They paid 110 million to stream one program. That's how valuable sports has become now. So these, you know, Michael Jordan bought the Hornets, uh, got the name back recently, Charlotte. He bought them for 275 million about 11 and a half years ago. A consortium of investors. I'm part of it as well. Just paid him three billion for the team. Because by the way, you can have the last place team. And you get an equal share, one-thirtieth of all the national, international media. So you make a fortune yeah. even if you're a terrible team. And then you have your own seats to sell, your own local media to sell, your own real estate to sell. So the average across Major League Baseball, the NBA, Major, you know, hockey, and Major League Soccer has been 18% compounded for the last 10 years. The stock market's been 11%. And you get the fun of ownership. And today you get this tiny little piece and be able to join. It's never been available before, and hopefully the NFL will be available soon as well.
0: But this, this, so uh, the holy grail of investing, and in, in, in we hear you today talking about the success of private placement, private equity, private credit. Um, it's been elusive, though. I mean, it's like a, it's a good... It's it's an elite club of people with a you know I know how this works I mean there's minimum levels of investment most a lot of it even now is institutional you point out Ray Dalio you don't get to 174 billion by average dudes putting in a thousand you know so like so how how does the the person listening right now if they find this is a worthy investment ad, uh, advice to follow and after having read your book,
1: how do you get in? Like, like there's, how, there's, how does this become not something just for the elites? Well, there's, there's two things. First of all, you couldn't even legally get in unless you were an accredited investor, which means you had to have a million-dollar right. net worth, not counting your house, or make 200000 a year or 300000 as a couple. And I've always said, this is ridiculous. Why do the richest people in the world get access to the best investments, and the people that need it the most don't? Well, fortunately, Congress agreed, and about four months ago... Bipartisan, one of the few bipartisan things they've done, they passed a law that says, this is ridiculous. You might have inherited your money. That doesn't mean you're sophisticated. You might be a good businessman, but you don't know investing. If you take a test, you study and take a test, you're accredited. You don't need a million dollars. Now, the Senate needs to approve it, but it looks like it's going to pass bipartisan as well. So that's exciting. But then you bring up the bigger point. You know, you and I are well-known people to some extent, and we have a certain amount of success, and we know the right people, and so we might be able to get in there. And I was getting little slivers of some of the best in the world, like the ones I interviewed. Well, it, it wasn't gonna move the dime for me, and it wouldn't move the dime for most people. So I was lamenting about this to a friend of mine who worked with Paul Tudor Jones, one of my clients, and he started his own firm. And he said, Tony, you've helped me so much, I'm gonna let you in on where I put most of my money. Now this guy is really successful financially, so I'm leaning in, you know, tell me. He goes, Tony, there's this company in Houston, Texas called Cas. And as soon as he said Houston, Texas, I'm like, not London, not Singapore, not New York, not Connecticut. He goes, yes, they're outside the bubble. And here's what they've done. You know how you're fighting to get a little piece? They've spent billions of dollars and bought pieces of these companies where you're the general partner. So people know when you invest in a private equity fund, they tie your money up for five years. They get 2% of your money as a fee no matter what, whether they do well or not. They do well or you wouldn't keep your money with them, and they get 20% of the upside. That's why they're so wealthy. Well, people are willing to do it because the returns are so insanely good. Well, watch this. You're a limited partner when you invest in one of those. A general partner is the owners, the CEO, and so forth. You can actually buy a piece, small piece, a sliver of these companies. So I have a piece of 65 of the biggest private equity firms in the world where I'm getting that 2%. And twenty. So I get about you You're getting that two and twenty. I'm getting 10% (laughs) a year in income and all the upside multiple that comes from the growth of those businesses. And when they double in size, their costs don't double, their profits increase. I get that. When they sell the business, I get a multiple on it. That is available to an average investor for the first time in history. So that's one of the things I was most excited about. You can do this with some of the Mm. best companies that exist literally in the world. Well, I'm sure you can learn a
0: lot about this um, and the access and the investing philosophy and the holy grail of investing. You're doing so much out there, man. And I really am. And I, I, do, I don't do, you know, I used to have a uh, this beautiful Tony, this beautiful black and tan Doberman. I lived in New York City at the time, and I would take him to Central Park. It's leash-free before 9 a.m. Be like, That's, he's gorgeous. I'm like... I know. He really is gorgeous. But I can't return the compliment unless it's a real compliment, meaning I can't just say, oh, your dog's pretty, too, unless it's a pretty dog. So I don't give gratuitous compliments. I'm a fan is what I'm saying. Well, and you, um, it's, it's not just positive thinking. It's intelligence. It's manifesting You know how you see the world. It's habits. It's investing. I know you're doing a lot of stuff in health as well. You're something here in Dallas where, I'm, where I live and where I'm from that you're working on when it comes to health screening. You're doing a lot of good things. You're, you're In short, man, you're full of wisdom. And I really appreciate you hanging out with us oh, today well, I, on the Will Kane
1: Show. I really appreciate it. I'm a fan of yours as well. I've watched many of your shows. I enjoy them. And, and by the way, I want people to know, though, if you maybe get a little investment in this book, I don't care how advanced or, or just beginning you are, you'll understand it. But also we're donating, as I've done for my last four books in a row, and they've all been number ones. 100% of the money goes to feeding America. And I set a goal 10 years ago to feed. I was fed when I was 11 years old on Thanksgiving. We had no food and changed my life. It wasn't the food. It was that people cared. And so I, I started with two families and then four. And then I got to a million families and then four. And I said, I want to provide a billion meals in the United States in 10 years. And I'm proud to tell you we did it last year, two years early in eight years. And we're continuing. Now we're doing 100 billion meals across the world. So while you're changing your own life, you'll be helping other people who are really are in need as well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Providing solutions as well in this world. Thank you so much, thank Tony Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I, next time in person. I know okay, a lot, a lot is lost. <laughs> you know, nonverbal, you know, body language, energy. You know, I believe that. We manipulate energy in the room. So we're losing a lot of it here, but I think we did a good job with your wisdom. No, thank you so much, Well, I'll see you in person sometime soon. All right. Take All right, take care. Tony Robbins here on The Will Cain Show. That was awesome. That will be something that will live at Will Cain Show on YouTube, because that will be something that you want to listen to, watch, um, whenever you can find the 45, 50 minutes that you have available to make your life better, where you can actually find... Uh, there's some room in your day for wisdom. And then go, of course, check out um, The Holy Grail of Investing, among the other uh, two books in his trilogy on on finance. Tony Robbins. All right. If you are too compromised to stand trial for willfully, as is found by the special ca- counsel, willfully mishandling classified documents, if a jury wouldn't find you or anything but a befuddled old man— then why are you qualified to run the free world, to be president of the United States? That's next on The Will Cain Show.
1: From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News hourly update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.
0: President of the United States cannot remember the years when he served as vice president. It's the Will Cain Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube channel every day. 12 o'clock Eastern Time, live streaming at Fox News' Facebook page, YouTube channel, and at foxnews.com. And then, immediately after the episode, available on demand at Facebook, at YouTube, at The Will Cain Show. Go right now, hit subscribe, so you'll get that Tony Robbins interview the minute it's cut and uploaded, so you can share it with your friends. And if you listen on podcast, as I know so many of you do, that audience growing, I got the numbers recently, that audience growing day by day, then you hit subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Last Thursday after the live episode of the Will Kane show, I took off uh, uh, in a car on a four-hour road trip from Dallas to Houston. It was my son's conference tournament in high school soccer. I spent Thursday and Friday watching a high school soccer tournament, and then immediately on Friday night flew to New York to host Fox & Friends on Saturday morning. On Saturday, after the show, leaving the show 20 minutes early, I got on an airplane and flew to Las Vegas. Landed and immediately went to Gronk's beach party. And from there, did my best to make my way towards bed to get some semblance of sleep before hosting Fox and Friends on Sunday. Going to the Super Bowl, hosting Fox and Friends on Monday. The point is, until today, and yesterday's breakdown of the Super Bowl, until today, I have not been able to take a moment to spend some time with you over the breaking news last Thursday that the president of the United States is not competent to stand trial. That's a bit of a paraphrase and a bit of a colloquialism, but Special Counsel Robert Hurt, in the investigation into Joe Biden's willfully mishandling of classified documents, documents including the withdrawal from Afghanistan stuffed into a garage in Delaware safely, according to Joe Biden, next to his Corvette, and openly given to his ghostwriter, all of which was found in the special counsel's report, concluded, though, that he could not prosecute Joe Biden because it would likely be the case that a jury would look at him and consider that he is a befuddled old man, incapable of being held responsible for his willful misconduct. That in on its face is a shocking discovery. First of all, no one is paying enough attention to the fact That this should immediately lead to the removal of charges against Donald Trump for the mishandling of classified documents. It is not a special counsel's job to provide the defense with an affirmative defense. It is not a prosecutor's job to say, you're guilty, but I don't know that I can ever find a jury to convict you. Now, prosecutors across this country, federal, state, special, and local, will all use prosecutorial discretion to decide whether or not they have a strong or weak case. But it is rarely the case that I have a strong case, all the elements of a crime, but not sure I can find a jury that's going to buy the truth. That's what Robert Hur offered up to Joe Biden, and it sets a standard that that same thing should be offered up, then, therefore, to Donald Trump, whose argument might not be that he was a befuddled old man, but even stronger is he was president of the United States. So he has the available affirmative defense of the Presidential Records Act. He can classify or declassify anything at his discretion. While that might be arguable to some, it's stronger than, eh, I'm not sure a jury would look at him and say, you know what, there stands a criminal. And that was the case with Joe Biden. And her argument as to why a jury would not say, uh, there stands a criminal, is he's a befuddled old man. In two interviews over two days, Joe Biden asked, for example... Was I vice president in 2013 and referring to events in 2013? On a second day, Joe Biden turned to third parties and said, Was I vice president in 2009 when questioned about events from 2009? He couldn't remember the term, the dates of his vice presidency. Separately, apparently, when given a range of dates, he couldn't narrow down when he lost his son, Bo Biden, which he talks about quite often. This was such a big deal last Thursday and Friday that he gave an impromptu press conference. And Biden never gives impromptu press conferences. Biden never gives press conferences. Biden never does Q&A. So when he announced an impromptu Q&A, a a impromptu press conference, we were left that night, standing on the sidelines of a soccer game, by the way, in Houston. We're either going to war or the president of the United States is stepping down. Instead, he defended himself and his mental competency. He lied. And said that the special prosecutor found he did not willfully mishandle classified documents. The lie. The opposite of the truth. Her found he did willfully mishandle classified documents. And then wanted to prove his, the strength of his mental acuity in a confused speech where within the span of 24 hours he couldn't remember if it was the president of Mexico that shut down the wall in Gaza. President Ceci of Mexico which is President Sisi of Egypt. He defended with emotional grandstanding his ability to remember when his son died by saying he retains the rosary from the lady of can't remember the church. Joe Biden, it's obvious to anyone who sees anything the way he walks, the way he talks, The way he comports himself emotionally, often resorting to anger, which is the handrail of control when someone feels insecure and out of control. The most easily accessible emotion that you often see in older people of anger when faced with their own confusion. Joe Biden isn't strong enough to stand trial. He's not, therefore, strong enough to run the country. Here are the important questions coming out of that. Who's running the country right now? There's no way you come away from that with the answer, Joe Biden. So who is running the country right now? I know there's some, like my co-host on Fox and Friends, Rachel Campos Duffy, who provide you the answer, Barack Obama, and his sphere in his orbit. I fear the answer is much scarier. That the government is on autopilot. That the FBI, the DOJ, the military-industrial complex, the Pentagon— they're all on autopilot. This is what we talk about when we talk about the deep state. This is what we talk about when we say permanent Washington. And it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or Democrat, if it's left or right, the bandwidth of change within Washington is about five degrees. But when a true existential threat to permanent Washington was elected in Donald Trump, something that fell outside of the bandwidth must be destroyed by Democrat or Republican. And that in and of itself might be the biggest feather in the cap of Donald Trump. That the military-industrial complex, permanent Washington, the DOJ, the national security complex, the FBI, the Republican and Democrat parties all saw him as a threat. That might be the biggest cap, biggest feather in the cap of Donald Trump. This... Permanent Washington is clearly on autopilot when you don't have a captain at the helm, as is so obvious with Joe Biden. I do not think that Joe Biden will be the nominee as Democrat for president of the United States. Not because he's mentally incapable. They're happy to continue running on autopilot. But because the nation is seeing that the captain is asleep at the wheel, that the nation sees that the leader of the free world should be able to remember 10 years in the past, that the nation sees this cannot be the president of the United States. Polling suggests Joe Biden is losing to Donald Trump all across the board, and that will be the reason that he will not be the nominee as Democrat for president of the United States, because it's obvious to you because it's obvious to me, because it's obvious to America that if you're not competent to stand trial, you're not competent to be president of the United States. So I didn't see it coming. I didn't see Patrick Mahomes. Fine, whatever, make fun of me. Neither did you, neither did anybody else. So don't don't look out the rearview mirror with, 2020 vision now and say, oh, we all knew it was coming. One of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. That next on the Will Cain Show. Stories from Las Vegas. Stories from the Super Bowl. It's the Will Cain Show streaming live at foxnews.com and at Fox News Facebook and... On YouTube at the Fox News YouTube channel. As soon as we're done here today, go hit subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or Fox News Podcast, and on YouTube at the Will Cain Show, and you'll always have this right there in your feed whenever you want to watch or listen to the Will Cain Show. All right, just got back from Las Vegas last night. Got my first full night of sleep in four days. A little bit like a Navy SEAL, sleep deprived, but still performing. Um, I feel like I have taken a baseball bat to my face and my energy level for the better part of a week. But here we are back together again. What's up, Two A's? What's up, Establishment James? What's up with Tinfoil Pat? <laughs> I, love nick- I love the nicknames. <laughs>
2: I love the nickname. I have I have the red Yunkin
0: vest now. I should have worn it today. <laughs> this weekend, while I'm at the Super Bowl, literally. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. I mean this literally. I'm at the Gronk Beach Party. It it's possible I was hanging out with Flavor Flav. I'm getting group texts from Establishment James talking about <laughs> Glenn Youngkin's taking the stage. He's at some <laughs> political dork convention, and he's telling me how cool it is that Glenn Youngkin is about to speak. I'm like, if you don't take me off this group text, you're fired.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you have Trump Jr. Uh, let's say he's having beers. Um because that's all we could say. We have beer, have, having a drink with Troy Aikman, but somehow that's being a nerd? I, I don't
3: know. It's not more important <laughs> than the Super Bowl, I'm sorry.
2: You're, you're, you see your boss's favorite quarterback, you
0: should say something to him, right? I, I guess? Don't trot out Troy Aikman <laughs> like the shiny bauble on your rotten Christmas tree. You were there Troy, to, uh, to watch the a bunch of political too. stuff. Troy was getting into it. Uh, it's You had to see it to, to, to,
2: to understand it. I, I understand why I didn't sell it enough, but...
0: Troy, did, Troy how did how did Troy vote in the straw poll of Virginia politics?
2: I was, I was more paying attention to where the applause lines were, where he was and where he wasn't, and it was very— I'm sure he'll appreciate you telling everybody. I'm sure
0: he'll appreciate you telling everybody when he, when he pumped his fist. All right, what do you got for me today? Uh, 2 a days what do you got for me today when it comes to um, stories from the Super Bowl?
3: So I was thinking, I think you posted this. You said it was like two to one 49er fans out there in Vegas— Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I was wondering, what was the rowdier fan base you saw outside the stadium and inside during the game,
0: Chiefs or 49ers? 49ers. It's just no doubt about it. Really? Okay, and I'm going to give you two reasons why anyone that's there would have to say the same thing. Las Vegas was a home game for the San Francisco 49ers, and here's why. Geographical, pro- geographical proximity, for one, it's just easier to get to Las Vegas from San Francisco or the Bay Area than from Kansas City. And two, um, it's new. It's exciting for San Francisco. Look, four Super Bowls in five years. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Chiefs fans. It's just the way it is, you know? I mean, there are going to be fewer Pats fans at the end of that dynasty who made the trip and paid the money to go to a Super Bowl than the first potential Super Bowl. That's just the way it is. And so, um, now, the Chiefs fans that were there were enthused. But, you know, for them... If they lose, well, we've still got two Super Bowl victories in five years. Um, for the Niners, there's this sense that makes it like really intense beforehand. Like, are we gonna finally win it, or are we becoming the Buffalo Bills? of this decade and that leads to intensity so absolutely Niners yeah I think I think
3: the Chiefs came in with a sense of confidence either, even though they were kind of the dogs going into the game but like they just had that like you just said they have the Super Bowls and so I think they came in with a little calm quiet and you know just watch us kind of thing
0: well they have Mahomes and that leads me to sure. this Mahomes. on the show group Mahomes. text that's funny I think because uh, here I we was go doing ten, some research tinfoil Pat ten, I knew <laughs> tinfoil Pat would have something to say <laughs> on the on the group chat about Mahomes
2: He's doing a little research, and I came across a video from the NFL draft, and someone was a little critical of Patrick Mahomes. Hmm.
0: Do you want to talk about that? that is, you're talking about me. You're talking did you, did about you believe, yeah, there's a clip. wearing a, a Dak Prescott jersey on ESPN. There's a clip going around that shows Stephen A. Smith, Shannon Sharp, myself. It's a montage. A few others. Criticizing the the pick of Patrick Mahomes by the Kansas City Chiefs when he came out with Trubisky and Watson, but I would ask you this, Patrick: What did I say Trubisky in that fan, viral video? So. What, well, he what, he what did footwork. I say in that viral video? Yeah, he footwork. He was
2: footwork was bad, undisciplined. Um, undisciplined, which you know he wasn't yes, very disciplined so, yeah, on that fourth down run either. You know, he clearly you know improved. So I mean, maybe you were right to an extent.
0: You know. All right, in the viral clip, I am saying I hear words like undisciplined, (laughs) bad footwork. Then why'd you repeat that work ethic? So here's the thing. Are you suggesting that I was wrong for relaying to you words that I heard? I heard words. And I told the audience about words. You you put
3: your name behind it. You put your name behind it. I don't know.
0: How do I put my name behind? It? I didn't say he is undisciplined. I said I'm hearing words like undisciplined. Semantics. semantics. <laughs> hey, I stand by that in the in that just because the future refutes the past, it doesn't mean at the time the past was inaccurate. So when Patrick Mahomes came out, that was all said. That was all true, and it would have made me skeptical of drafting him. Those criticisms that he received would have made me very skeptical. He sounded like a freelancer. He sounded like, you know, the way he was described when he came out was essentially a less disciplined Aaron Rodgers. And in a way, in some ways, he is that. What we didn't know, the work ethic thing was completely wrong. Whoever put that out there, that's completely wrong. Um, But you look at Patrick Mahomes and what he does, and it's not like, wow, look at his incredible mechanics. Wow, look at his footwork. You know, And discipline is often, we think of discipline as like, how you conduct your life outside the game. But discipline is also how you live within a system. You know, I I always tell this story. I love this story real quick. Um, When Charlie Weiss was the offensive coordinator of the New England Patriots, early in Brady's career, they called a play, and the play called for a seven-yard out. And Brady threw the... So they called the play, the seven-yard out. Instead, Brady threw a go pattern that... Resulted in like a 30-yard completion. And Weiss blew the whistle and yelled at Brady and said, what are you doing? And he said he was open coach, so I threw it to the the, the go route. And he took the whistle off and threw the clipboard at Brady and said, if you want to be the offensive coordinator, then you be the offensive coordinator. The play call is the seven yard out. You take the profit as designed and you execute as designed. That's discipline, right? What we see with Mahomes is, okay, so what? He's thrown it across his body at bad arm. That 50-yard pass in the Super Bowl, you just know want what I'm talking about, where they fumbled it right afterwards, so mm. it, it added up for naught. But they couldn't move the ball in the first half. That was him running across the field, throwing across his body, into double coverage. Everything was bad about that. When he released ball. it in the stadium, when it was released in the stadium, my son and I were both like, that's an interception. Everybody around us was like, that's an interception and instead it drops right in the bucket of the only explosive play really in the game, especially in the first half. And just you didn't know when he was coming out that all of those words were true, but you're dealing with a talent that is otherworldly and can pull off being undisciplined with bad footwork. So I I was right, even when I'm wrong.
2: In the Netflix documentary, um, the, the quarterback one, we, we see it with Mahomes, and two of the big things that they show is that they really do work on all of this mobility and the movement and kind of the out-of-the-box stuff. So it's not like it's unprepared or unpracticed. And it's also his, his baseball background is in playing shortstop pitching is the reason that he's able to make some of those throws so naturally that are quote-unquote bad mechanics.
0: Right, right. So the long and short of this is, before we move on to other Super Bowl thoughts, is even when I'm wrong, I'm right. What do you got to it, Ace?
3: That's, I mean, that's... Okay, all right, we're moving on. Do your sons agree? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I was curious, so I've never been to a Super Bowl. I've been around them, but at the game, you know, during the commercial breaks, it must be annoying because the commercial breaks are so long when you're there. It must be really frustrating sitting there being like, okay, can we just get this game going? And the person at home doesn't realize how much time is just sitting there.
0: Super noticeable. Great point if you said you'd never been to a Super Bowl. Last Super Bowl I went to as a fan was in the 90s. So, and we've all. If you, you, I'm sure you've been to an NFL game. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. These right. are much longer commercial breaks. So what they do, it's still a big lull. It's still a big lull enough that you can really go to the bathroom. Like you think about when can I go to the bathroom? And I have a thought on that. But um, they have, you know, what they have, in game production a little bit. So what That's they what did is they yeah. have a host or two, and they've got like you know how at NBA games they do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Now they're doing NFL. They did the Super Bowl. Um, it's that Colleen Wolf, who works for the NFL network, yep. was one of them. And she kind of says a few things and tosses it to somebody, and like out comes Joe Montana. And he doesn't speak, but he waves. You know what I mean? And then out comes Patrick Willis or whatever. It's like they had different guys come out and just kind of wave at the crowd to give you energy. Real quick on the bathroom thing, I said this yesterday, and I'm not, I hate negativity in a way. Like I got onto two of you guys the other day. Yeah, I don't like this commercial. I didn't like this. Like, two of you guys. Like I don't know what it's gonna take. Establishment James and Tinfoil <laughs> Pat to be happy. But Good um, so Good. I don't want to listen wanna... to Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> just, a, just a sweater vest. Uh, I I, uh, I don't want to be negative. But Allegiant Stadium's brand new, and it's the Super Bowl, and there was a long line for the bathroom, and I tried to figure out why, and I counted nine urinals when I got in there. Now I'm spoiled maybe because I go to AT and T and the Cowboys and it's phenomenal. That stadium is awesome and it's 20 years old. But this stadium, for being brand new, on the inside, eh? Narrow hallways, crowded Mm. walking around, hot dog, eh? No real, you know, interesting food items. I don't know. I don't want to be that guy. At, at that, the that's police. what I wanted to ask. Was like, I mean, I
2: saw some prices where it was like fifty bucks for one item. I mean, it would just seemed absurd.
0: I don't remember um, that being like there. It's it's ball game expensive. I don't remember it being extra ball game expensive. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. By mm-hmm. the way, Vegas in general, I don't know if it's always like this. Like, it's ho- impossible to get a ticket. So, like, one, my son and I ate at Johnny Rockets. Well, no. By the way, Vegas has nothing open before 11 a.m., too. And we're <laughs> on East Coast time, and I'm doing shows at, like, 3 a.m. So, the, you, the quietest time of day in Las Vegas is, like, 9 a.m., 10 a.m. And um, there's nothing to eat. So, we ate Johnny Rockets and, like, two burgers. It's like I'm $60 in, it felt like. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. Have you been to non-Super Bowl playoff games before? Yeah, Cowboys, for is sure. It, is there a different dynamic? I think I heard maybe Joe Burrow say this on a podcast a few years back. The dynamic of a Super Bowl versus a, a playoff game, and the playoff game is ruckus and mm-hmm. big and it's all fans. And is there more of a corporate maybe kind of yes. business guy element at a Super yes. Bowl It's maybe less intense? Or what is the intensity of that game yeah. like compared to an NFC championship or a divisional game for well, the Cowboys?
0: <laughs> so a couple uh, – <laughs> Wow,
3: <laughs> that's savage.
0: Who do you like, establishment? James, you're, oh, The oh New you're England Patriots. Patriots. Oh yeah, and the New York Yankees too, right? Indeed. Yep. Oh, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> you got you, you got a
2: front We we've talked about this for two nickname. years, and you you've just been waiting for the time to say it. But I've already told you the reasons a couple times, and you know the reason, but you're not going to say I it. Don't care that wouldn't work reasons. on air. We it's a it's a perfectly no. fine reason. It has nothing to do with front runners. <laughs> Now were, so picking, so like, now we're picking, what, third James. in the draft? picking third the draft?
0: Front runner establishment, James. You yeah, have to make a new graphic you're, you're for You're getting him. all the nice adjectives. Um, yes, it's absolutely true. I'd rather, I'd rather go to the NFC Championship game possibly than the Super Bowl if the Cowboys were in there, it's, especially the home side of it. It's just, yeah, it's way more invested, way more raucous. I will say, the Super Bowl, yeah, the you know – there's a lot of corporate um look man i think the tickets ended up like $10,000 were was a decent average and i'm going to be real with the audience. i didn't pay i didn't pay i mean um this was because i went and i covered the game and i did think about selling them <laughs> and i did think about go, <laughs> going to going to the blackjack tables and i said to my son how much would i have to give you in selling these two tickets for us to like you know make this work but there's a lot of fans. I think you guys saw the video. I saw a video of somebody going around asking people how much did yeah. you pay, and it's not just like CEOs. It's regular people. So I don't know. There's regular people spending a lot of money on from the on this game. Yeah. I guess I don't know. Well, yeah, it seems like a fun time. That's all we got for you. Uh, it was it was it was a good time. Um, it's a it's. I mean, obviously, and this is the thing, why you'll end up paying $10,000 a ticket. You want to go when you have one of your teams in, in there, and then all of a sudden it's worthwhile in a way for it to be a real memory. But, like, I don't know. Whoever James picks next year to root for, you know, after, <laughs> after the playoff seedings are set, you know, say they make it, James. Your favorite team when come we pick, December we, we get, 1st. We
2: get Jaden Daniels, the third overall pick. Although, we'll, I guess when the draft comes, we'll have to see if your quarterback wisdom is as strong as it is, and whoever you say is good or as bad we will take.
0: Yeah, yeah. What? That's right. That'll Deep tease. Will Kane was right even when he was wrong on Patrick Mahomes. So I'll let you know, Patriots fans, should it be Caleb Williams or Drake May or Jaden Daniels or whoever's left at that point in the draft. Um, all right, this has been a good time. That's going to put a ribbon probably on our Super Bowl talk for the week, but we'll continue to talk about sports as well as news, politics, and culture. So don't miss tomorrow's episode of The Will Cain Show. And remember, go hit subscribe at all of those channels, and you can watch whenever, however, you like. I'll see you again next time on the Will Kane Show. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.